Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. approach for Athbabel scientists is to work very closely, in particular with the marketing experts of a company who know and who have studied their clients or customer base and get a sense from them about why are clients behaving in a certain way? What are their motivations? What kind of behaviors they have observed? And sometimes marketing departments or communications department don't have all that information. And then we go in and design first some surveys to get a better sense of the underlying reasons why people are behaving or misbehaving, maybe, trying to get at the underlying motives. That was Nina Mazar, professor of marketing at the Questrome School of Business at Boston University and author of the book Behavioral Science in the Wild with Dilip Soman. As you just heard in the highlight, Nina has spent her career examining ways to help individuals and organizations make better decisions and increase societal welfare, collaborating with organizations and governments leading to affect change. In this podcast, she'll be sharing fascinating insights from her years of study about how morals, honesty, and dishonesty guide our decisions, how an organization can impact a client or customer's decisions at the moment they happen, how pricing can be a powerful and I would say overlooked lever for affecting customer behavior, and how to design experiments to understand your customer's underlying motives. Nita's experience working with various governments and organizations gives us much to think about when designing our customer customer's experience, and I would also say our employees' experience. We hope you will enjoy learning from her. Ladies and gentlemen, Nina Mazar. Nina, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you on the podcast, finally. You know, I'm really excited to be on it. Awesome. So this is a real treat for us because you being a leading authority on behavioral science and you've applied it in so many different contexts. I'm excited to get into all the different ways it can be helpful for setting strategy, but we want to get to know you a little bit personally first. So if you can complete this sentence for me, this can have nothing to do with your work at all. If you really know me, you know that. Well, you know that I deeply care about increasing societal well-being. There is the academic world, and I cater obviously to that. But I feel if it's only read by a few academics, it's not really useful. I want to put my insights and my knowledge out there for good and deeply care about that. Did that inform your choosing to study what you've studied? Have you thought like, I want to create knowledge for good and your areas of study are good for that? It did. So I was influenced by a lot of senior scholars among that. Where's my advisor, Dana Rialli, but also Richard Thaler, Daniel Kahneman. But then I had this wonderful colleague at the University of Toronto where I had my first position as a professor. His name is Dilip Solman. And he was always interested in the practical side. Like, how do you apply our insights to the real world. And he had some wonderful experiments, for example, in India, where he's from. And at some point, as I was getting closer to tenure, he kept nudging me saying, look, we can do so much more with our work. And once you approach tenure and you feel more comfortable that you may get it, you actually have the space as an academic to think about that. And I totally agreed with him. I think through his influence and a few others, my research was shaped more and more by the questions such as, well, what are the big themes out there, for example, in Ontario, 
where I was living at the time where we could help and improve societal well-being. Or then I ended up joining the World Bank because the World Bank decided that they wanted to create a behavioral insights team. And I helped them for two years to set up that unit. And I went to India and to Malaysia. And I learned about all those problems that the World Bank is trying to solve and thinking about, well, how can those insights, how can the knowledge that I've learned over the years, how can that inform policy? How can that help decision makers to improve their programs, make them more effective, more efficient? And once you start down that path, at least that's how it was for me, I got more and more excited and I'm very, very happy that I get to do that. I love it. Yep. And it seems like you're studying human behavior. That is what humanity is. So it seems like you found just the right place. So we want to get into your work. And some people say strategy is not what you say, but what you do. And what you do is behavior. So I think all your work is not even ultimately, it is directly strategy. And I know you also have Roger Martin as a mentor. So this is a question I ask all of my guests to get a different answer every time. What is your definition of strategy? So I'm per se not a strategy person, but yes, I was very much shaped also in my thinking by Roger Martin, who is an incredible being. I was very lucky that he was the dean at the Rodman School at the University of Toronto, where I had my first job. So we overlapped for quite a while. And, you know, he is for me the strategy thinker. So when you ask me about my definition of strategy, actually, I think his definition at the end of the day, if I'm understanding it right, I think he's saying that strategy is choice. Strategy is decision making. It's about choosing what you are doing and what you are not doing, right? Because and do everything. And if you just try to simply be better than everybody else on everything, that is not strategy. And so there is also this connection. And I think that's what you were alluding to my world, right? Because I'm all about human behavior and decision making. So I like that definition that strategy is choice. You need to make some choices. Yes. Let's dig into that choice a bit, because a lot of what you're famous for, you're known for many things, but a lot of what you're famous for are these choices that we make when we think we're being honest, but we make choices that are dishonest or cheating behavior. What is an insight that maybe someone who hasn't thought as much about it as you have, what insight can we share with them? You're right. From an academics perspective, I'm probably most known for my work with my advisor, Dan Ariely, on, as we have called it for many years, the dishonesty of honest people. So people like you and me who think of themselves as highly honest human beings, but then we are faced with all kinds of decisions, whether to transgress or not. I mean, there are so many temptations around us, multiple per day. So how do we stay on that path? I started out studying that, trying to understand what makes us stay on the path and under what conditions do we transgress and get off that path. And what we do to help people to get back on when they got off that path? And so, for example, our research, as well as the theory that we came up with, suggests that you need to get morality or ethics into people's minds in the moment where they are tempted transgress, right? Like if you have these workshops or these lectures when you start a job where you take a video or you have to watch two, three videos and then answer some questions at the beginning of your job and then never again. Yes, you may have learned something about how ethics is being viewed in company and you may have learned something about the processes if you need to report something. But that doesn't mean that in those moments day to day when you may be tempted to fudge some numbers here and there, that's ethics are in your mind in that point in time. And so what can we do along those lines? And I'm not the only one that has done research on that. So there's a lot of work out there on, for example, introducing pledges that people have to sign or think of a pop-up window at the moment when you are about to fill out a form or I've done also thinking 
about active versus inactive behaviors. So for example, if you're filling out a tax form, right, and you're being asked if you had any additional income, if you can just leave that cell empty, it's a little easier to transgress, right? Because you could tell yourself, because we're very good at rationalizing as human beings, this was a mistake. I would have reported if I had really seen it. If I am actually forced to type in something because otherwise I cannot move on to the next cell, now Eating becomes a much more deliberate act because now I have to actually actively write down zero if I really want to cheat or a lower number. And that feels subjectively worse than if you can just leave it out and you can tell yourself, oh, this was just by mistake. I didn't really see it. Interesting. Then the implications of that for behavior at the workplace. Fascinating. I'm also curious, I listened to a video of you talking about this work that you did with increasing organ donations in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. So I was very fortunate that I had the chance to work with the Ontario government on a few projects. One of them was to try to increase organ donor registrations because there's a long wait list of people who need organ donations. That's actually not just the case in Canada, same as in the US and in many other countries. So we went in with our behavioral economics lens, which is basically customer or human first, very similar to design thinking. And we went to the Ontario service centers where usually people sign up as organ donors. So that's similar to the department or what's the name in the U.S.? The Department of Motor Vehicles, DMV. We went there to see, okay, well, what does the process look like? And what we very quickly saw is, well, you get a wait number, you sit down and let's say you are there to get a new driver's license. You wait, you wait, wait, wait. At some point you go to the counter, you say, I want a new driver's license. You do whatever you need to do. You're finished. You're happy. You think now I can leave the room. And in that moment, the agent actually asks you, and would you like to register your consent today to sign up as an organ donor? And it doesn't take rocket science, right, to realize that this may not be the best of times because you hadn't thought of that. For some people, this is a very personal and important... Let me think about it. Let me take my time and think about it. Uh huh. And so people will just walk out and say no. And so we came up with a few improvements. So first of all, hand out an organ donor registration form together when you get your weight number. Second, simplify the form. There was so much information on there that actually was not needed. And we also checked with the lawyers which information is needed. Then there was also some information you were already giving anyways when you were at the count, such as your address and whatnot. So we got rid of everything that was not needed. And then just to give you this tiny little nudge to start thinking about it. We printed in large letters at the top of the form, if you needed a transplant, would you have one? And you don't need to answer the question. You're sitting there. This is the question in your mind. And probably most people will say, yes, I would take a donation, right? Then you go a step further. I'm like, well, I should do it too. And then by the time you're at the counter, you're in a very different mindset. We tested in the field. We increased organ donations twofold. The government was very excited. And sure enough, they have implemented those changes. They have simplified the form. They put that big question and have it now at the top. And we have since followed up with a few other studies. And if I may boast, I guess that's the word. <laughs> we just highlight Times Impact Award for that work. Congratulations. So let's talk about a situation and when behavioral science has backfired. We've been an example of where something like that didn't work out. That's a very good question. And it's actually also connected to the book that I published last year with Dilip Solman. So oftentimes you will not find that much published research. You will find a lot of research on what works, but not so much on what doesn't work or may even backfire. But one of the experiments that I really love in that context is actually a study that was run by economists Uri Gnizzi and Aldo Rossicini. So they worked with a collection of daycare centers in Israel 
Israel that had the problem that parents sometimes showed up late picking up their kids. And what I mean with late is past their opening hours, right? So the daycare workers want to go home. The child is still there. You can't possibly just lock the door and leave, right? So what could you possibly do if you feel like you have exhausted your insights and your ideas? What an economist may suggest is, well, introduce a fine, right? Let's say for every time when you pick up your child's leg, you pay, I don't know, $10? Like that? That sounds like a good solution, right? Yeah, makes sense. You do the economics and what's the cost of being late? Well, it turns out that's backfired tremendously because now there was a price tag. How much does it cost to be late? So it communicated some information about, okay, for $10, basically you can be late. And so instead of affecting the behavior of the people that were late, it affected the behavior of the people who were not late before because they now felt, well, I'm okay paying $10 for being late. So you're taking away that bad feeling of being late because now there is a price to it. And if I'm happy to accept it, it's okay. You know, it's kind of a contract. So that didn't work out. Yeah, that's fascinating. Like the implications of this to pricing, which many would say is the most profitable lever of your strategy. It's fascinating. I think about Amazon, when it introduced Amazon Prime pricing, it had people pay at the time $79 to be a member and then they got free shipping. And then they wanted to buy everything from Amazon because they wanted to maximize the return they got from that investment. The sunk cost, so to speak. I think it's important to know when you change policy, when. Yes. So then how would you approach that? Let's say, you know, you've done work with the World Bank and NGOs and things. Let's bring it to a business context. There is a company that wants its salespeople to prefer this kind of customer over that kind of customer because this kind of customer is more attractive. This is the customer we want. And they might try different things. They could put something into the CRM system. They could do training. They could do some messaging. But it could go really well, as your case with the organ goes, or it could backfire. What is your approach to designing what the behavioral science intervention is and testing it out? How would you approach that? I guess what I do need to say that companies like Amazon or other tech companies who have the ability to do very, very quick A-B testing, for them, what I'm going to say is probably a little less important because if you are able to do A-B testing and you are set up to get data quickly and see what results are and you can quickly change so you're very agile, then I think even if there is sometimes a little bit of backfiring, it's not a big deal as you can refine, right, as you have that feedback loop. But for many companies, they're not set up for that. And so the approach for us, Babel scientists, is to work very closely, in particular with the marketing experts of a company who know and who have studied their clients or customer base and get a sense from them about why are clients behaving in a certain way? What are their motivations? What kind of behaviors they have observed? And sometimes marketing departments or communications department don't have all that information. And then we go in and design first some surveys to get a better sense of the underlying reasons why people are behaving or misbehaving, maybe <laughs> trying to get at the underlying motives. And once you have them, then I go back to that vast amount of knowledge that we have all accumulated and try and see, well, for those particular motivations and behaviors, what do we know from research? What has worked and what has not worked so well? While I will still not know for sure whether it will work or not, at least I have done my due diligence to get some ideas of what could work in this particular situation. But then ultimately, we would still like to run an experiment, get the feedback, and then give some advice to the company. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. I was getting a sense of whether you follow someone along and what's their journey and take that kind of approach. But it sounds like you're asking them to share through surveys or directly what their thoughts are, what their motivations are in this decision. You know, it can be part 
part of that first phase too, that you follow a few customers to get a sense. But ultimately, as you want to scale, you do need to get insights from many more people than just a few that you were able to follow, right? And so this is where surveys then usually work better. But the idea is really the more interdisciplinary your team is, and if you can work with designers and marketing people, but also the tech people, the computer science people and the data people, right? That is really important because you need that feedback loop. You need to make sure that that is being recorded and that you have a process in place on how to analyze it and really gain some insights from it because you can have all in the world, but if you don't know what to look for and how to analyze it, then you're sitting on potential gold, but you don't necessarily know. I know that this is not officially an area of formal expertise of yours or interest of yours, it's just culture. There are different theories on culture. Cultures could be values, they could be a sense of identity, but I like the idea of culture being defined by a set of shared behaviors. And I think that a lot of your work in a way is shifting culture or elements of culture. So what do organizations get wrong when they are looking to scale behavioral science and shape behavior? What's the common thing that they get wrong? So when I think back to the interactions I've had with organizations, I feel what organizations oftentimes get wrong is that they think that behavioral science is very easy and they don't necessarily have to engage with any experts on that. And I can why, because when you read books such as Predictably Irrational, such as The Nudge Book and so many others, it's so intuitive and it should be because it's about humans. It's about you and me. So we can relate to what we are reading and we can think, about, oh, yeah, that's true. The other day when I went to the gym, I actually used the escalator rather than the stairs, right? Like all these things we can really relate to. And I think that companies as a consequence then think that it's also very easy to come up with interventions and to sometimes also think that don't necessarily have to run any experiments to find out what really works and what doesn't. And then they try to implement the behavioral insights and may have read what changing the default responses will change everything. And then they don't see a difference. And then they think, well, maybe behavioral science is a hoax or whatnot. And I think it's in part to blame are we as scientists because we oftentimes only write about the things that work, not so much about what doesn't work. And our papers usually don't describe exactly what was in place for this particular intervention to work. An expert, on the other hand, knows, well, the study was run at that point in time with these particular people who had these underlying motivations. So if you now were to take this and scale it to the entire population where we have a lot of different people with a lot of different motivations, the effect may not be as strong anymore. In fact, you may not see it anymore. So that's basically what that book that Dilip and I also is about to give you a sense of what are the obstacles as you as an organization are trying to scale and translate what you have read. What you need to look out for? What are the common pitfalls where things can go wrong? And also just understanding that because there's usually a publication towards the things that work, you don't know about all the things that didn't work. So you may read 100 studies on the default effect or let's say on social norms. For example, if you tell somebody 90% of people in your area have paid their taxes on time and you're one of the few who have not, that, that will decrease your delinquency, right? So if you have 100 papers, out of those 100 papers, 100 papers show that social norms work as an intervention to change human behavior, you think you have a pretty good chance of changing behavior. But what you do not know is that maybe there exist 200 other studies that researchers were not able to publish where social norms did not work. We're not getting a clear view of how likely you are to succeed with a particular intervention, how robust it is. And this is where a book comes in because we asked experts on these different themes such as health, such as education, financial decision making and so on, as well as experts on particular types of interventions such as social norms 
to write about what do they know at this point in time? What are the crucial points? Like what can be obstacles under what conditions does it work? Where has it shown to work? In what population has it shown to work? Because oftentimes research has been done also more in the Western developed world, not so much, for example, in the south of the world. Right, right. Fascinating. Behavioral science in the wild is an excellent compendium assemblage of the current best thinking. I highly encourage people to read it. I have many, many more questions, but I know we've reached the top of our time with you. People who listen to this and want to learn more, want to connect with you, continue learning from you. What advice do you have for them? Certainly buy the book, but is there anywhere else that people can stay connected to you? Go to my website or shoot me an email. I'm very accessible. <laughs> I'm not so perfect that I'm being buried. Not yet. Not yet. After this podcast, you will be for sure. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking some time to share it with us, Nina. Thank you so much. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.